You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Major Jacob Absalon. Jacob, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So you currently teach uh, at West Point in the Behavioral Sciences and Leadership uh, Department. I wonder if you can give listeners though a little bit about your background. When did you join the Army? So I joined the Army straight out of high school. I'm a West Point graduate of 2007. Now, the class of 2007 prides itself on being the first class to apply or start the application process to West Point after 9-11. So a lot of classes at West Point, you know, fancied themselves the class of 9-11 in some way, uh, that they were here as freshmen or seniors or, or those kind of things. And our part of that was we started the application process afterwards. I'm not going to say uh, the events of 9-11 were a huge driving factor for me to, to join the Army or a service academy. Um, but learning more about the academy in high school from a counselor, uh, knowing that uh, my family did not have the financial resources, that if I was going to go to college, it would be either on scholarship or on my own. Um, at West Point was a really appealing option. And I've always wanted a chance to kind of serve. Um, not a big swimmer and not a big fan of heights. So Air Force and Navy were off the table. <laughs> uh, so so you started then in, in, I guess, the summer of 2003, correct? Yes, so by that time, we've been in Afghanistan for a year and a half. We're now, uh, you know, the war in Iraq has kicked off, uh, you know, a few months prior to that. Did, you know, for, for much of the past two decades, we've kind of thought of ourselves as being involved in kind of two theaters in these in these two separate wars. It's really defined a lot of, um, uh, you know, the experience of, of a lot of service members. Did that, did that define, say, your four years at West Point and kind of the way that you feel that the kind of institutionally that you were prepared as an army officer? Absolutely. I remember as a senior in high school watching the invasion uh, of Iraq in the March of 2003 on TV uh, and knowing that I was on my way to West Point that, that summer. Uh, my only frame of reference for, for a conflict in Iraq was a Persian Gulf War that, that ended fairly quickly. So I for the most part, anticipated the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, being over by the time I graduated. Um, and that's something that a lot of my classmates shared as well. At least in the first summer or first year, I think it quickly became apparent that that was not going to be the case. But uh, that was kind of one of our frame of references going into our, our first couple of years at West Point. So as you're approaching, say, you're, you know, as, you're, as you become a first year, as you're approaching your, your final year at West Point, 
uh, had your paradigm sort of shifted to where you really realize that you're not only preparing for a career as an army officer, but for many, or maybe even most of you and your classmates, you were preparing to commission, go to your, get, go get branch qualified and probably deploy. Yes, it was a very real. And for me personally, it was a summer before my, my senior year at West Point where I had the opportunity to go to uh, CTLT, which is kind of job shadowing uh, for a summer with a unit down in third ID uh, at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And that unit had deployed night 12 on 12 off, uh, for, for a number of years in support of operation Iraqi freedom. So leading those soldiers and having that opportunity that summer, um, I didn't shadow a platoon leader. I actually led the platoon because they were short on lieutenants at the time. So a young 21 year old, uh, Jacob Absalom with braces, uh, and and cadet (laughs) rank had the opportunity to, to lead, uh, an organization for a summer or for a month, I should say, in squad life fires, gutter, uh, Bradley guttery, some, uh, course quarters, combat and shoot houses. And, and that motivated me. So I came back for my cadet leadership detail at Cam Buckner, um, as a platoon leader, uh, for another six weeks. And by the time I went into my first year, I knew branch selection and post-selection were coming up that I was, I was motivated about that. And the conversations I had had, uh, with the soldiers at Fort Stewart or the soldiers training us up here at Camp Buckner, uh, made it very real, uh, that that was actually going to happen. After graduation, so you mentioned branch branch selection and post selection. Did spending uh, part of that summer at Stewart? Did that put Stewart on your list? So post wise, no, uh, but branch wise, I, I did uh, shadow a mech infantry platoon, or I was part of a mech infantry company, and uh, three six nine speed and power, and um, it did. It did. I wanted to go infantry. That was my that was my goal. Um, I remember the class two thousand seven. Uh, infantry branch was fairly popular and w- actually went out fairly early in the process because we all uh, wanted to wanted to have that experience, wanted to get to combat it, and wanted to kind of serve our country in, in that capacity. Um, didn't work out that way for me, but it, it was my number one choice. So what branch did you end up with? So I ended up with armor, uh, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I love my branch and I, you know, at no point did I ever feel like I was settling. I know about a week after branch night uh, where I found out I was armor, which was my second choice. Um, but I was not infantry. I was in the middle of my class. Um, so I was upset. Uh, then I learned more about dismounted reconnaissance and airborne opportunities and, and, a, and a host of other things that uh, cavalry reconnaissance and armor units do that it really kind of motivated me. Reached out to some mentors here uh, who were junior and senior faculty to kind of talk about those options. And, and I quickly embraced the branch. And I'm incredibly grateful that I had the opportunity or I have the opportunity to serve in it now. Okay. So what happens then? You, you finish West Point and, and you go to your basic course? I do. So I uh, finished West Point, uh, took some leave, went home and, and showed up to my basic course at the time. It was at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, now mm-hmm. both Army and Infantry are combined at Fort Benning, Georgia. I had an awesome opportunity down there, uh, enjoyed it, and really kind of thrived. Um, I, the advice I give to current cadets is, and second lieutenants when they graduate is, is take Bullock seriously or your basic branch or basic course seriously. Um, it's the best opportunity to learn your craft and learn your trade and, you know, about 16 weeks, depending on your branch. And you have all the resources there to be successful and do well. And I, I took it seriously and I did well. And that really set me up for the future. And then where did you go? What unit were you assigned to? So uh, after basic course, I went to scout leaders course or army reconnaissance course, and then, uh, ended up at airborne school, ended up going to fourth brigade, 25th ID, uh, in Anchorage, Alaska at 
what was then Fort Richardson and now is Joint Base Elmendorf. Okay. And were you given a platoon right when you when you got to Richardson? <laughs> I, I laugh because I showed up on a Monday and uh, I was a platoon leader that morning and we were deploying to NTC for uh, our first of two rotations over the next six months by Thursday. Uh, Thursday was 4th of July. Um, so I, I dropped off. There was about four lieutenants. Uh, we shared a townhouse. We dropped off our bags and we got on a flight from Alaska to uh, Fort Irwin, California. Uh, were, you all, were you all brand new? We were all brand new. Um, all of us. We all arrived within a week or two of each other. Uh, so some folks had actually kind of knew their platoon. Others did not, like me. And it was actually a great opportunity because when you think about the opportunity to go down to Fort Irwin and train six weeks in, that's what your basic branch course prepares you for is to lead tactically. Um, and that's what we did right away, um, which was awesome uh, for me as a leader. I developed a great relationship with my I, my platoon sergeant. It was the first of many of my NCO counterparts or non-commissioned officer counterparts that I've, I've been incredibly blessed and fortunate to serve with um, moving forward. So that set kind of the tone for my, my career with NCOs was, was that rotation. Yeah, I'd have to imagine that if you show up and you're going to NTC three days later, um, that really your platoon sergeant and your squad leaders are... I mean, are going to be even that much more important. They're always really, really important uh, for a lieutenant, uh, a new platoon leader, but in that case, particularly, and and the level of trust that you have to be able to kind of give them early on, since you are so new, I imagine would have been um, would have been important. It was, and and I blew that relationship uh, initially, and and I say that because I sat down with uh, Sergeant Harris. Uh, when I got to NTC and I, I had been trained and taught to, to counsel your producer aren't early and this is how it goes. I was very robotic about it. Uh, I was very deliberate about it, um, but I wasn't very thoughtful about it. And when I get done uh, with was kind of a one-sided 30-minute conversation, I'm, I'm feeling proud. I did what I was trained to do. And uh, Sarah Harris looks at me and goes, well, well thanks for that, sir. Would, would you like to know anything about me? And I realized that I had I had not asked him any questions about his background, his experiences. He had been in the platoon only about a month longer than me, so about the platoon, about his family. Uh, so that first conversation, and luckily he was very forgiving, and we actually developed an incredibly close. He just retired recently, but an incredibly close relationship after that. So uh, he helped me out as a young lieutenant and kind of taught me the importance of building that relationship and, and what a real counseling looks like and how that should go. Wow. Okay. So about when is this? You graduated in, in 2007. So this is presumably maybe like spring 2008. So uh, we took a while for a number of our courses were longer. There was a lot of waiting in Bullock. So I actually did not arrive until uh, July of 2008. Um, okay. So yeah, it was yeah, 4th of July and then, when we showed up. And the NTC rotation was um, was planned in advance of, of a deployment? So this was a first of two. So our certifying NTC rotation was later in November, uh, this was an augmentee rotation that our squad outgoing squadron commander had volunteered the squadron for to go support first brigade's NTC rotation. Um, okay. so we were up there as kind of the augmentation unit and the op opposing force, uh, to support them. So, uh, we, we had a series of kind of certified exercises and gunneries and, and external X evaluation. So we got training as well, but our primary mission was to, to fight against the, the certifying force, um, which was first brigade. So that was in July. And then we went back and did our rotation in November. Okay. And then when did you deploy? So then we deployed, um, in February of 2009. Uh, it was interesting that we, at the time we transitioned in and out of uh, Kyrgyzstan, 
uh, Manus Air Force Base, and I spent my 24th birthday on the way there in Manus, and I spent my 25th birthday on the way back in Manus. Um, and my birthday's on Valentine's Day, so it was quite the quite the romantic engagement for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, you you always have a, a, a soft spot in your heart for Manus Air Force I do, Base. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you get into country in February 2009. Yes, into Afghanistan. So we, we get into country. I had trained up actually as an augmentee platoon for our uh, special troops battalion um, because at the time, Colonel Lesperance, oh, correction, uh, Colonel Howard was a brigade commander and we had four provinces responsible for 4th Brigade 25th ID. Uh, we only had three maneuver battalions. So one of the support battalions had battle space and the only maneuver element they had was an MP platoon. So my platoon, I was selected by a squadron commander, reminded me we only send our best. I have mixed feelings about that, but we were selected to to go support this other battalion in, in Logar province, while the rest of our squadron would be in Paktia province. Uh, so that was our initial set for about a month in Afghanistan until Colonel Howard realigned the battle space. Uh, we had a few more forces surge in. We had a National Guard unit come in to support. So that allowed my platoon to move back to squadron um, not to our troop, uh, but back to squadron as a as a quick reaction force for the initial set of the deployment. Okay, so then were you back into Paktia province? So I was back into Paktia province as the QRF. So we we balanced all around Paktia province um, and adjacent provinces along the Afghanistan Pakistan border uh, for for that I guess spring into into the summer. They they called it the summer fighting season back then, but that's mm-hmm. kind of where we were. And then. Uh, and then what happened during the summer? So you didn't remain as the QRF for the entire deployment? So we did not. So uh, one of our uh, most unique missions as a QRF starting up, though, was actually um, showed up and led about an 80 U.S. and Afghan border police, NA soldiers, a small uh, special forces team up about a 2,200-foot ascent um, along the AFPAC border in, in Dot Bataan province, which was one of our uh, – missions as a QRF to kind of support that. It was, it was kind of surreal for a young, you know, 24 year old to be leading an element that large with that kind of climb. We did about a, a 2K uh, zone reconnaissance across, across the border uh, spread out. Uh, what was really insightful about that was it was one of our earlier missions. So we were loaded down with all sorts of equipment because uh, we, you know, it was the first deployment for a lot of my organization and a lot of my platoon and trying to climb 2,200 feet with every piece of protective equipment and, and ammo and water we were carrying was um, a learning experience. We later learned how to pack right, uh, how to use iodine tablets and water purifiers and, and move across that terrain in a different way. Um, so that was a great opportunity as a QRF that we would not have had um, had we been attached to like a troop deeper in Afghanistan, not along the border. So experiences like that as a QRF allowed us to kind of refine our standard operating procedures and some of our uh, TTPs. Uh, to be more successful later in our deployment. Okay. So the story you're going to tell is from, um, what was the name of the operation? So it was actually Sahak Thunder, Operation okay. Sahak Thunder. <laughs> okay, Sahak Thunder. And uh, as I understand it, you were partnered with an ANA force, an Afghan National Army force, is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we worked with, uh, it was 1st Company, 1st Battalion, 203rd Corps, uh, which was the Afghan company we worked with. And had you had any challenges? Um, you know, this is around the time when you're starting to see a spike of uh, green on blue attacks. 
um, by 2009. Did you have any challenges working with the ANA? This is also a time when they were getting more and more pressure to, you know, to kind of uh, have Afghan led operations. In a lot of cases, it wasn't possible yet, um, but there was some pressure to do that. Uh, were there any challenges associated working with part- or associated with working with partner units? So yes, uh, after we moved back to the troop, we had a, a small engagement. I, I call it small now, looking back, but it was fairly serious at the time uh, with the Afghan National Army Partnered Force, and we had we probably had about dozen to 20 or so IED strikes um, throughout our time uh, in that area. We, we did a lot of mountain maneuver. So IEDs, pressure plates were a real threat. And we ran into quite a few of them. Most of them were in pressure cookers with HME or homemade explosives. So we navigated that uh, the way we saw f- the best way we could. And a lot of times we, we weren't able to dispose of those with um, EOD teams that we had to take care of them on our own. And when we were working with the Afghans to dispose of one we had found on the road, uh, they were making some bad decisions with it. And um, it, was, it was dangerous. So our, our platoon sergeant actually went to intervene um, with that engagement and say, hey, back away. And it escalated because in the uh, Afghan army, there's a lot of rank structure. Um, mm-hmm. the, they don't have an NCO corps. So when an, an enlisted soldier tries to tell an Afghan lieutenant what to do, it didn't go well. So he actually drew his pistol on him. Um, our soldiers drew their weapons, their soldiers drew uh, their AK-47s, and, and actually an Afghan policeman locked and loaded an RPG uh, in a truck above us. Um, so as a young lieutenant, I, I run over to this to try and stop it from, from escalating any, any more than it already did. Um, and it kind of de-escalated itself once we all kind of took a deep breath. Um, so that was a team we were working with in this area was that we had literally just all pointed our weapons at each other in a hostile environment. We were out on a mission when this was happening next to an IED um, wow. and we were able to deescalate it. We actually kind of sat around <laughs> and, uh, and in a circle and, and kind of talked about our feelings, which I didn't think I would be doing uh, <laughs> in Afghanistan to make sure everybody was good to move forward because we, we could not continue that mission after that um, uh, unless we addressed it. And we did. Um, and, uh, it actually, that as dangerous as that moment was, it, it built a lot of cohesion, uh, in our team moving forward. Uh, we were on a cop, maybe half the size of a football field with 22 or so U S soldiers, depending who was on leave and an Afghan company of about 80 soldiers. So, so we were living on top of each other. We all knew each other. Uh, and we, and we finally got to know each other well. Um, after that day, and we made some deliberate efforts to kind of build some relationships in between missions uh, moving forward. And that was the same unit that you would you were partnered with on Sahak Thunder. Yes, it was. Okay. Uh, so when was this operation? I understand it was it was supposed to it was planned to be a five day operation. Is that right? Yes. So the uh, actual operation was in support of uh, President Karzai's second round of elections in two thousand nine. So the operation itself took place in, in August. So what does that mean to have an operation in support of elections? So a lot of shaping operations. Uh, we wanted the community to feel comfortable coming out to vote. Um, and we wanted the the roads to be cleared and safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted that not only the security elements, but the government forces and government officials and the community leaders and the elders, the tribal elders, to, to have freedom of maneuver in that area. And that was part of it. Um, I remember talking to a lot of my peers in Iraq at the time, and they lived on these large bases and went out on, you know, presence patrols that lasted three or four 
hours. Um, and, and I let them know that a lot of my operations lasted three or four days. Uh, where we're outside the wire, so to speak, uh, maneuvering. So this was one of those. It was a little bit longer than traditional. So we we left um, on day one and didn't return back to, to our cop until kind of the end of the operation. So it was a longer, uh, you know, 24-7 security operation moving through as well. And did you have a plan of kind of where you were going to stop each night, things like that? We did. We had a number of uh, polling sites or voting sites, I should say, um, that we were working through as well. So unfortunately... It was clear on day one that the security situation was not favorable, that the Taliban forces, Haqqani forces, and others were using this as an opportunity to disrupt the election, or at least send the message that the government was not in control. Um, so we were averaging about two forms of, of uh, troops and contacts or ticks a day, uh, whether that was RPG-related small arms fire, uh, IED, whether uh, it was hit or, or found. Um, so we, it was, it was a high intensity few days, uh, throughout, throughout the entire operation. And it was your platoon and, uh, an entire company, ANA company. So it was about a platoon plus of ANA. Uh, they rotate through there. They were kind of a, a red, green, amber cycle where some were on leave somewhere. So we probably had about 40 ANA soldiers with us at the time. And were you maneuvering together as, as a single element for this, for the entire five days? That was the plan or no? So no, uh, it really depended on, on the operation set that day. Um, we actually adopted kind of a, a CAP uh, combined arms patrol operation where, you know, one of my squads or sections, scout sections would partner with one of their platoons and maneuver together. Um, so we, we were split in two uh, to better maneuver two larger Afghan sections as well. What kind of vehicles did you have? So at the time we had RG31s uh, and Max Pros and MRAPs. Uh, I love those vehicles. We had sustained a number of IED strikes, and while they weren't very maneuverable, they survived. So uh, when your vehicles were hit, um, or when mine was hit, we were able to walk away from it because uh, while the vehicle was destroyed, the, the V-shaped hole protected it. So it, they weren't great for for maneuvering. Um, so we spent a lot of times on the roads, um, but at the same time, they were safe. They, they were solid vehicles. So uh, at, we, we had two Humvees earlier in the deployment, but we, we got rid of those to, to focus on the, the V-shaped hold and the more protective vehicles. And when you, uh, when you did your certification uh, rotation at NTC, were you, is that the sort of vehicle set that you had or did you have tanks? So no, we, uh, we had all Humvees um, and mostly everything was dismounted. The first time I saw any of those uh, vehicles was in theater. Uh, which was unfortunate, but but we picked up that learning curve. I and mean, we actually started the deployment with, with Humvees, but the number of strikes throughout Eastern Afghanistan uh, quickly came down that we, we were cycling out of Humvees and moving into more protective vehicles. So I, we were not familiar with those vehicles, but for the most part, uh, we the turrets were the same, the, the optics were the same, and the systems were the same. It was just a different frame or chassis. And were most of your soldiers tankers? So they were all 19 Deltas, which is nice. So as an armor officer, I've always enjoyed that in our community, we have 19 Deltas, which never go near a tank. They're scouts, you know, through and through. They may spend okay. some time dismounted Humvees or Strikers or uh, Bradleys. And then you have your 19 Kilos, which are 
very deliberately tankers. And that's what they do. That's what they specialize at their subject matter expertise. Whereas in the infantry world, you have, you know, infantry officers, but all of their soldiers, regardless of the platform they're on, are 11 Bravo. So I fortunately had 19 Deltas that were specialized in reconnaissance security operations, and that was their trade and skill. Uh, now, they got familiar with the certain vehicles, but we didn't have any tanks uh, it, it, actually in that region of Afghanistan at the time. Most all the tanks were, were in the south. So it wasn't as big of an adjustment for you or your soldiers uh, as it might have been for a more traditional armored platoon yes. to then go suddenly and, and be on foot and or in yes. MRAPs for the duration of the deployment. Okay. So August 17th, uh, 2009, what day of the of the operation was this? So this was towards the end. Uh, I okay. know the, or I guess it would have been day four because we were only okay. out there for about a half day after all this. And you had had, you said you'd had a number of sort of ticks um, where you'd had incoming fire. Um, but I, from what I understand, this is kind of the uh, a bigger engagement than what you had experienced over the previous three, four days. Uh, yes. So I had actually just wrapped up a, a key leader engagement with one of the local physicians and I was moving out of the um, building uh, to, to link back up to kind of get a sit rep uh, from my platoon sergeant. I didn't have a lot of situational awareness of what was happening outside because I was in his uh, kind of the doctor's office, so to speak, for, for about And this an is hour. in a village? This is in a village, yes. In a, about how big? I would I would probably say that there was maybe 10 to 15 kind of Kalat families in there. So you okay. figure 20 to 30 people kind of per Kalat compound. but So not huge, but put a good size village in, in Zormat district in Afghanistan. Okay. And, uh, so you come out of the building, uh, after this key leader engagement and what happens? So we come out of the building and I had, uh, four vehicles with me. Two of them were kind of set off and hidden, uh, prepared to kind of respond if something were to happen because we continued to take engagements and we were tired of not being able to maneuver on them. So we had deliberately planned that when we do maneuver, we were going to have a section of vehicle set off to be able to kind of respond. If, if the unit under fire was able to fix the enemy, then we had a maneuver element to, to flank the enemy. Um, and we hadn't been as successful as we wanted to with that simply because of the terrain um, and the built up kind of urban area of some of these villages where a lot of this was happening. So uh, as I move out, my platoon sergeant kind of gave me a sit rep on, on what was happening. Um, everything was calm. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the tempest, the calm before the storm, uh, is, is what normally goes down is, you know, right before you do a radio check that, you know, all is quiet. And, and then minutes later, uh, you find yourself in a, in a firefighter and engagement. And is that what happened in this case? That, that's exactly what happened. So as I moved out, um, of the, of the KLE and the engagement, we, we took fire from, from two primary, uh, enemy firing positions, um, to our kind of South and West from where we were from were they were they were the firing positions in or on buildings or or where were they so most of them were dismounted uh that we could tell uh just gaining situational awareness i, I talk to lieutenants about this all the time or even when you're training the fog of war is real uh you think you have a good idea of what's going on in the moment but then after the fact either watching video or, or checking mission control systems you find out you are off or you were wrong so at the time uh I saw them as moving dismounted. Um, none of the clots were more than one story, so there was no kind of high position. And most of the time they used uh, vegetation and concealment um, to kind of maneuver because there were a lot of um, valleys and irrigation channels and ditches that they were kind of able to move, move around on foot. 
And how many soldiers? You said you've got four vehicles. So how many total soldiers do you have with you, American and Afghan, at this point? So I, our, we had our entire platoon. So uh, it was it would have been about eighteen to twenty, uh, depending who was on leave at that point. And then we had about a platoon plus. So I would say forty to fifty Afghan soldiers with us at the time. Uh, in terms of elements, we had a machine gun team, uh, two scout sections, and then we had a, a mortar, a sixty millimeter mortar team. Um, they weren't 11 Charlies. They weren't mortarmen. They were scouts who were cross-trained on, on employing the, the 60 millimeter mortar, which is you know effective for direct fire as, as well as indirect. So we had that team on standby as well. And so as you start taking fire, what's kind of, what's going through your head? What's your first kind of decision point? Well, the beauty of, of what's going, you thinking through some of these scenarios was, uh, rewind, uh, a few months previously that the very first engagement I had in Afghanistan, my company troop commander, uh, Captain Brian Johnson happened to be out with us when it happened. And I was a young Lieutenant, you know, my first engagement, I wasn't sure what to do. And you know, in that first second, you know, when you think about, you know, I don't know how I would respond and you hear the fire, you know, the firefight start kicking off. And I looked at uh, Captain Johnson at the time and, and he took a knee and he got on the radio. He took a knee behind a clot wall and calmly and collectively reported up to squadron what was happening as that initial contact report. So that set the tone for me for my entire deployment, um, that any engagement we ever got into, it was that deep breath, take a knee and get on the radio. Uh, our organization had our battle drills. Our mortar team immediately got set to return fire if necessary. We, we had limited capabilities via uh, community. FM communication, so we use tactical satellites, which require setting up a, a small antenna. And my RTO or my FO at the time, a forward observer who controls my fires, um, set that up in seconds. We had that battle drill. So as I'm taking a knee, my soldiers are going into action. Um, the two sections are cross-talking with each other, um, where one section moves to try and suppress that enemy. The other section of vehicles is moving out. So uh, the beauty of having a well-trained organization was that uh, despite any of my emotional response or any of my uncertainty about the situation, I knew exactly what steps my myself and my soldiers would take to gain that situational awareness. And in that moment, uh, in one of the most intense moments we've had, it, it, it worked and it worked well. And I was really proud of that. And so you, you get on the radio, you, you call up, you report the tick. Um, are you starting to think through then how to maneuver your forces? I am. I am. So uh, as soon as you know, and I remember those contact reports, you know, contact troops, hundred meters south out, you know, just yeah. the, the quickest thing you can say on the radio to, to let people know, Hey, whoever's in that uh, talk uh, can start actioning and, and supporting you. So uh, that's what we did as our elements started to move in position. I knew we were responding well, uh, although we had built some interpersonal relationships with the Afghans um, and the Afghan army and our counterparts, we had not built a lot of tactical proficiency. So one of my biggest challenges at any firefight we were in was maneuvering the Afghan element. Um, they didn't have the battle drills established or the systems or the equipment or the weapons that we had. Uh, so gaining situational awareness of where my Afghans were at the time uh, was a challenge. So uh, I did see that the nearest element of Afghans, about a squad plus, um, was kind of fixed along a friendly position with that southern enemy. Um, 
and they were engaging. So it was clear where they were shooting at. We could see the enemy, and that's when I had my mortars with, with Corporal Boo uh, start returning fire with a direct fire 60 millimeter mortar to kind of allow that southern element of Afghan soldiers to break contact to a more a better cover to conceal position. And were they, were they able to do that? No. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and part of it was they, they took casualties right away. So usually when, you know, in, in an ambush, uh, the enemy gets a pretty significant vote and advantage to, to be the one to, to start the engagement. So one of their soldiers had been, uh, took a gunshot wound to the head immediately. Um, so they weren't treating him effectively and maneuvering around him effectively to, to get him to safety or to get him out of the kill zone. So, uh, that element was not uniform in their response. Um, and we quickly realized that as a, my machine gun team and one of my NCOs moved up that, that they had a casualty along that Southern wall. And so in, in a, in a case like this, when you're working with a partnered unit, um, you know, that there's a, there's an Afghan platoon leader there as well, correct? Yes. And so if, an, if, an, if there is an Afghan casualty, uh, you know, to what degree are you sort of relying on, on the, the ANA platoon to kind of, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that I kind of characterize this in the best way, but to sort of take care of their own, to be the ones to react, to try to, to reach the casualty, to provide first aid. And, you know, conversely, to what degree are you saying, hey, there's a wounded Afghan down out there. They're not doing anything about it. We need to, we need to take action. That was one of the gaps we had uh, in training our Afghan counterparts was kind of working them through a, a CLS or a lifesaver course. Um, they, they did not provide first aid well, uh, and they didn't have the training to do that, nor the resources. They, they didn't have first aid kits on them at the time. Um, so other than kind of applying pressure, they weren't trained to do that well. So, And in terms of command and control with my counterpart, um, we didn't have radios on each other's frequencies. Um, so we were always close to each other because any, any communication between him and I were, was verbal, um, or, or through an interpreter. He, he did speak a little bit of English. And so at that moment, it, it was clear that his squad leader was signaling to him and my medic had already identified the casualty and, and my medic needed support to get to the casualty. So well, we were all on the same page about the casualty fairly quickly. Um, but then getting that casualty, the, the, the support that that he needed was, was necessary. So I was able to get the nine line medevac up fairly quickly uh, because we had that tax at the unfortunate thing about a, a tax at radio is it's stationary. So once we have that link established um, for me to, to use that net, I, I need to be close to it. So I was able to push up that medevac request uh, immediately uh, on the tax at um, as well. And then, and then I moved out to the casualty with my machine gun team and medic. You did personally. I did personally, and I, I did not mention that I should have early in this conversation that my uh, patootsar was on leave um, during this engagement. So okay. a lot of times you rely heavily on your platoon sergeant to navigate, um, you know, especially when it comes to uh, supply and, and medical requirements. So he was actually, he was, he was back home with his family. Everybody deserves that. Um, and it was just, it happened to be his time. And so he wasn't there for that. So my, my senior ranking NCO in the platoon uh, was a sergeant, uh, D5. So um, one of my uh, squad leaders had been relieved and the other one had uh, was a casualty and, and left. So uh, it, was, it was Lieutenant Absalon and, and a number of NCOs and highly motivated junior soldiers uh, in this particular engagement. 
So is this Afghan casualty out in the open? So he, he was. He, he was between kind of a, a Kalat uh, building and a Kalat wall, but, but in the open there as well um, initially. Now the Afghans pulled him to closer to the wall, uh, but instead of pulling him away from the wall towards the building, they pulled him closer to the wall just to protect him. And it, it was about the same distance, but I think they just want, wanted to get him to, to where they were. So yeah, he, he's uh, wounded and non-responsive along the wall. So you said you you moved toward the casualty along with uh, your machine gun team. How many of you total were were there? So there was uh, three of us. Uh, the NCO, who was kind of the uh, one of the acting section leaders, and then two privates. Um, and the mortar team moved up about halfway up there uh, to a, to a better position. So they were they were in that immediate area, but they weren't directly uh, part of that team moving up to the wall to secure the casualty. Did you have a medic with you? So I did have a medic, uh, Juan Sabailos. Uh, love the guy. He actually ended up going special forces after that. So he, he was a phenomenal, phenomenally talented medic. And, uh, and he moved up to the casualty as soon as we were able to kind of provide some suppressive fire to get him up there. Um, as soon as he got to the casualty, uh, there was an RPG hit on the far side of the wall. But since the casualty was so close to that wall, it impacted the wall and kind of caused a, a small concussion that kind of knocked uh, Juan um, over. And, and he, he wasn't he didn't move initially. So I don't know if it knocked him unconscious or just kind of rattled him for a second that he kind of collected himself. Uh, but he did immediately return uh, within seconds to treating that casualty. And uh, he's from Colombia and he was swearing aggressively in Spanish um, <laughs> after, after he came back too. So... Um, we moved up there again because I, I didn't have the the NCO experience. They had, so some of those E fives sergeants had deployed to Iraq for a very tough experience, so they they were seasoned. But in terms of kind of leading maneuver elements, I didn't have that. So that's why I moved up there myself uh, with that machine gun team to kind of gain some physical command and control of that Afghan squad. Plus, uh, the issue was that as soon as we got to the wall, secured the casualty, um, and my machine gun team was doing their job. Uh, the Afghans broke contact. Um, the Afghan National Army soldiers broke contact away from the kill zone, um, leaving the majority of their equipment. Um, we didn't know how the firefight was going to turn out, so I wasn't comfortable break, you know, moving away from that position with all that equipment there. There's a you know, good chance that the enemy attacking could have advanced, and, and now they have all that equipment. Um, so as we broke contact out of the kill zone, uh, we kind of gypsied ourselves with all that, through that like slinging weapons on our shoulders um, to move all that out of the kill zone as we were carrying the casualty, um, I want to say 20 or 30 meters back to the, the next covered position. At this point, what is the rest of your platoon doing? Are they, are they, I mean, are they able to return effective fire and, and, and kind of at least get these two enemy firing points, get these guys to keep their heads down or, or not yet? So they were the uh, the first section, uh, the exposed section, so to speak. That's not a tactical term, but the uh, the lead section of our uh, vehicles was actually able to to return fire, and, and they were able to maneuver to position where they had clear line of sight on the enemy and, and was attempting to fix them. Uh, our second section, Bravo section, that was ma maneuvering to flank the enemy was was a little more difficult, as I described the vehicles earlier, uh, maneuvering uh, on a dismounted enemy with a. I'm going to guess a 24 plus ton vehicle uh, isn't sneaky um, hmm. and, uh, and a little more challenging. So 
Uh, the beauty of that team was that we, we worked well um, of crosstalk. So I, I could hear all the traffic on the platoon net, um, but I, I didn't have to order it. That these two, the vehicle commanders from those vehicles and those two section leaders were, were crosstalking to make that happen. Uh, and I could hear it all. I knew what was going on, and I was I was providing order and guidance throughout that process while um, working with the machine gun team, the mortar team, and and actually following up with the nine line medevac to make sure that our, our we we were able to identify an HLZ and get some a medevac chopper in there. So you guys had uh, picked up essentially the AK forty sevens. They probably had you know RPGs, whatever sort of equipment they had. You're policing all of that up. And then essentially the plan is after doing that to break contact and sort of reconsolidate at the HLZ where the, where the, where the medevac, medevac chopper is going to be inbound at some point. So that was the plan as I was moving back, um, unless they were able to fix the enemy uh, with the vehicles and, and they were working through that problem set. Uh, unfortunately, as I was moving back, carrying all this equipment, uh, the enemy decided to escalate and we started hearing some 82 millimeter mortar rounds drop in. Um, fairly close to, and one actually forced me to the ground uh, as I was moving back, um, which was adjacent to what would have been our, our HLZ, um, our, our near HLZ. So uh, at this point, we were no longer dealing with some small arms fire machine guns or PKMs that we were dealing with some mortar, um, and they, they were attempting to kind of fix us or, or you know, add to those casualties. So um, as this was going on, we uh, designated a, a new uh, HLZ, um, because following those 82 millimeter mortars, we, we had a few additional RPG rounds uh, come in, not only the one that, that Walm was dealing with, but others. So we knew we actually had to push uh, a, a new HLZ farther to the western flank of our position. Um, and did you have to call that up? I did. Uh, I did. Yeah. So I was able to redesignate the HLZ um, and effectively, you know, crosstalk about how we were going to market. Um, we weren't, we obviously we didn't market at that point. Uh, we, we had to wait until it was inbound. Um, we don't want to give away that position. Um, and the other thing I felt a mission was actually on this mission, uh, prior service infantryman who had transitioned to chaplain was, was on that mission with us. So since it was a, a longer mission, a lot of times chaplains came along with us. So him and his assistant were actually carrying the, the casualty with our medic on, on the litter. Um, as they were moving through that as well. So it was it was actually really powerful to have the chaplain out there at that moment uh, yeah. and to have him kind of be a part of the fight the way he was and the way he was supporting us. So at this point now you're you're moving to the 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 alternate HLZ. Uh, there's still you're still in contact with the enemy. Your platoon is still in contact with the enemy. Um, does it, does your attention sort of shift once you, once you realize, okay, we can, this, we're going to get the medevac into this alternate HLZ. Does it shift back to, okay, what do we do about these enemy fighters that are firing at us? Yeah. So, uh, attention never shifted off of them. Uh, but as I gained some situational awareness about what was going on, uh, we actually realized that we were effectively able to pin them down, um, or at least two of them. Uh, the issue with that is a lot of times is, as they, they fight in civilian clothes, all they have to do is drop their weapon and move out, and we don't know who they were or, or what they were doing. Uh, we had some ISR uh, locally from a, a blimp uh, in the valley, and I, we were trying to work that ISR uh, on potential exfil rats. So we might be able to, if we didn't engage them then, maybe track them back to where they were going uh, for follow-on operations. So uh, this was all happening simultaneously because we typically we weren't able to fix the enemy. Um, so very rarely was it about closing with and destroying the enemy. It, it was kind of setting the conditions for follow-on 
uh, follow-on mission. So that was part of our, our calculus there is that how can we shape whatever was happening there for, for, for future engagement. So uh, we were actually able to fix them. Uh, and once I got that report from, from some of my, um, my vehicles, uh, we were able then, I was able to move with the Afghans and, and have them maneuver dismounted to, to the enemy who had, had, was kind of quartered for all intents and purposes by the vehicles. So that was a win for us. So we've had um, uh, several episodes now, including a, a recent one with a Marine Corps officer who was a pilot uh, and was a uh, forward air controller on the ground in 2006 during the Battle of Ramadi. And we've had a couple talking about close air support. Now, you know, that was obviously fixed wing close air support. We've had, I think, two uh, Apache pilots come on and talk about close air support. Clearly, this is being able to call up and bring in firepower from from the air is 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 a almost defining characteristic of u.s operations mm -hmm. uh, in iraq and afghanistan over you know almost two decades was there was there was that was that an option first of all and second of all were you was there a decision between sort of maneuvering your organic ground elements to close with and destroy the enemy or calling in close air support so we were remote we were incredibly remote. We had worked with a uh, CCA, so uh, helicopter support and CAS fixed wing support in the past. The issue is that just for them to get to where we were quickly uh, was typically not an option. There was a few times where we were lucky that they happened to be in the area or transiting through the area that we could tag into them. Uh, but for this engagement, we actually had two F-15s uh, fairly, fairly quickly on station. Um, and since the engagement was so close, uh, munitions from them wasn't an option. Um, this wasn't a, uh, we were soldier danger, close engagement, uh, and it wasn't necessary to, to necessarily use that kind of firepower in that moment. I think mm -hmm. Apaches would have been great. Um, and by the time the medevac arrived, it did have a A64 Apache escort. Um, and I do remember hearing them uh, over the net and, uh, I, you know, I, you mentioned that you interviewed some pilots, and I, I did feel bad because they, the, the AH-64s had missed the engagement by the time the medevac got there. And you could hear in their voice they, they felt bad about that, um, that, they, that we, had already, we had already secured the enemy, um, and they had kind of missed the engagement to help out earlier in the, in the engagement. But it was still great to have them on station. And, it, you know, at that point, you're at Consolidate Reorganize, and, and to have that air support on station as we worked through the casualty, got the casualty out of there, secured the area, made our lives a lot easier. But we we didn't have the opportunity to to employ them or their munitions at the time. Okay. So let's jump back then to, um, you've, you've heard from uh, one of your vehicles that, hey, they were, they were able to, you know, put effective fire on the targets to keep the enemy fighters heads down. What's your sort of plan to maneuver your elements and, and, and close with them? No, absolutely. So at this point, we were handed over to the Afghans to be that maneuver element. Um, like I said, we were a small organization. For me to to field my vehicles, a machine gun team, a mortar position, and then and counting the chaplain and his assistant to move a casualty, I, I had culminated my, my combat power um, in terms of, of a ground element to maneuver. So once the vehicles were able to establish that fix, that once the vehicles were able to fix the enemy, uh, at that point, I moved up with the Afghans to, to maneuver on the enemy. Um, and it was fairly clear on the maneuvering part that the the effects of the 60 millimeter border, uh, the Mark 19 from the vehicles, the 240 Bravos from the vehicles, 
uh, had done enough damage to kind of their their fighting position and their and restricting their freedom of movement um, that they had for all intents and purposes surrendered by the time the Afghans got to them and and detained them. So the the overwhelming firepower uh, in response and to be able to cut off their exfil um, allowed us to maneuver in fairly safely with that Afghan unit uh, once the U.S. forces had kind of done their job. And so there were still enemy fighters that were alive, had surrendered, that you then had to detain? Yes. So I, and I, I'm assuming there was some sort of crosstalk between the elements that were. So once we, we fixed the, um, I guess, the West element, the Southern element broke contact. Um, so our focus was on the Western element. It was, you know, returning fire um, on the Southern element, but our focus was, was securing the, the Western or fixing the Western element. So, um, Again, I, I described it one time to one of my troop commanders as, as fighting predator uh, from the original Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. You see nothing, you hit nothing. So we, uh, that happened with the Southern element who attacked us. Uh, that, that was not unusual to, to take a few shots and for them to break contact. And it looked like they did that. And our engagement was to the West with, with, those, with that element. Okay. So once that's kind of complete... Um you know, what's the plan then? This is, you said day four, you're, you're not, you're not planning to return to base, go back to your cop until the next day, correct? Yes. So, um, we secure the, uh, enemy, uh, POWs or EPWs and the ROE at the time was if Afghans secure any enemy, um, combatants, they do not come to U S control. So, um, they had control of those two. And they were mad. Um, they were angry. They had just, I mean, I never found out whether that Afghan soldier survived, but but seeing him and the gunshot wound to the head, I, I don't think he did. Um, he was alive when he was loaded on the helicopter, um, but the likelihood of him surviving uh, was, was close to zero. Um, and I think the Afghans knew that, that more than likely that they had just lost one of their guys. So they were upset and they had control of the enemy prisoners and, uh, and actually started beating them. Um, I wasn't there when that happened, but Chaplain Atkins, the, the chaplain who was with us at the time, uh, came over and told me that the enemy POWs were, were being, or EPWs were, were being abused. Um, so I walked over to the Afghan lieutenant um, at the time and uh, I, I did forget one really important part of this entire narrative is that the, the Afghan lieutenant, uh, who was the XO of the company, they didn't have enough lieutenants to be all platoon leaders. So the XO of the company was the same one who drew his pistol on um, Sergeant Harris, hmm. actually drove his vehicle uh, in between enemy fire and the HLZ during that, that day. And when I say vehicle, I mean he drove his um, Ford Ranger, unarmored Ford Ranger, in yeah. between heavy enemy fire to protect the lives of our soldiers trying to save his soldier's life. Um, so to me, that was a huge, like kind of a full circle growth moment of a, of a man who was willing to engage in, you know, armed conflict, so to speak with his, you know, partners. Uh, and that was in, you know, maybe June and, and now we're in August and he's putting himself at risk to, to help us save one of his soldiers and, and to protect us. So uh, that was a powerful moment. Everybody knew he had done that, and I hadn't had a chance to to talk with him about that moment, you know, 
that day until I walked over to him and, and thanked him for what he did uh, earlier in that engagement. And, and then also let him know that that's, that's not how we do business with, with prisoners of war. Um, and that, that, that wasn't acceptable and that, um, we will do everything we can to get these, um, detainees removed out the battlefield. Um, but, but they need to stop beating him. Um, and, and he agreed. He did intervene. He did stop it. Uh, we actually sat down, myself, him, and one of the uh, detainees, and actually shared a collat meal, which was a fairly surreal experience for me that after uh, a fairly hectic, engaging, uh, near-death experience for a lot of people involved, um, that, I'm, that I'm eating with this man who, who engaged and in, in, you know, tried to take my life earlier in the day. Um, and because we had that conversation with him, um, he actually then spent the next hour giving up positions throughout that community and village. Um, so while we actually spent the next day hitting a number of targets because of that dialogue, um, and, and it found a lot of caches um, moving forward. And I know why did you decide to do that? To sit down and have that meal. Well, the first. Re- I decided to intervene because a chaplain, a man of God, told me about it. Um, yeah. And I knew that, I, you know, I kind of had to do something. Um, sitting down and having that meal was, I, I looking at a man who had just engaged us in this firefight and then seeing kind of, I mean, he was bloodied. He was not doing well, not only from the firefight. He wasn't wounded from that, but from what the Afghan soldiers had done to him. Um, I pitied him for, for a brief moment. Um, and when I, I wanted to sit down and eat with the Lieutenant, um, and we agreed to that after he said he was going to stop abusing the detainee. And as they were picking one up to move, um, I kind of looked at him, the Lieutenant looked at him and, and I think our interpreter, to be honest, was the one who suggested it, um, that he, he join us. And, and I, and so he did, um, why I agreed to do it um, and why I thought that was a, an appropriate kind of move um, that we had kind of talked through, I honestly, I don't know at that moment, um, but I saw value in it after the fact. And, and as soon, I mean, minutes into that conversation through our interpreter, uh, it, was, it was clear that uh, there was value in that conversation and that there, there would be some tangible, uh, not only with the cachets benefits to it, but also kind of just from a, from a human experience of kind of talking through what had happened that day. So one of the things that strikes me um, from the story is that, you know, you, you get to your unit uh, the previous year, previous summer, you immediately go to NTC. Five months later, you go to NTC again. Um, during this engagement, it seems like everything that you needed to do tactically, you guys did you know, I, I don't want to say without a hitch because nothing ever happens <laughs> without a hitch. But, uh, but you guys, you guys had battle drills. You you had systems in place. Things just seemed to work on a tactical sort of TTP level. Um, but you had some. The challenges that you had were things like, hey, you've got a partnered unit that essentially breaks contact, throws down their weapons, and and takes off running. And you've got to kind of control your emotions about that because this is an enduring relationship. You also have then. Um, a group of the ANA who are engaging behavior that clearly, you know, you, you have to step in and do something about, and then you've got this kind of, um, as you said, surreal experience where you're sitting down, not only with uh, a detainee uh, who 
like you said, very, you know, that day had been shooting at and trying to kill you, but also your partnered lieutenant who two months prior had pulled his gun on your platoon sergeant. I mean, these are really complicated um, challenges that go beyond the sort of tactical things that you train on. Did you, did you feel like the training that you had, the preparation that you had at any point since you had joined the army, had he, had equipped you to handle those kind of things? Was it, you know, was there an, an, an element of kind of emotional intelligence that was important that, that had been drilled into, or was this all kind of by instinct? So 100% not instinct. I'll tell you that. I've been incredibly fortunate with some of my academic pursuits. Like I studied sociology and understanding difference and, and inequality, I think helped kind of inform, build empathy, even in a, in a combat experience for others. Uh, some cross-cultural competence was part of that experience in, in my undergraduate um, courses at West Point. But the largest contributing factor to the way I responded emotionally or some of the non-tactical decisions I made that day was I could I could name the mentor or the role model I had seen done that in, in that short time of you know my lieutenant days. So I'd only been in the unit um, obviously for about a year. Um, I'd only been a graduate from West Point for about two, but you know the the calm demeanor of my troop commander in, in engagements, the focus of Colonel Howard, who was our brigade commander through both those NTC rotations about learning about the culture and building those important relationships uh, with our Afghan counterparts, um, having conversations with my squadron commander about different lines of effort that weren't kinetic. Um, so I had, well, I was incredibly fortunate that I had officers predominantly, but some NCOs that showed me um, even though we were, our platoon led Eastern Afghanistan in the number of, of tactical engagements for a while. I saw that on a slide at some point. I'm not particularly proud of that. Um, but we had a lot of downtime in between those events. You know, that the entire story I just described to you was, you know, probably under an hour from kind of start to finish. Um, but we had, you know, 13 months or 12 plus months in Afghanistan. So we had a lot of downtime and we talked about a lot of these things. Um, before they happened. So while instinct was part of it because it became muscle memory because of my role models and because of our kind of contingency planning and vignettes and discussions, uh, it was all, um, a learned, learned trait, I think throughout this, uh, throughout this experience. Wow. Well, Jacob, thanks very much for, uh, for joining this episode of the spear and for sharing your story. And, and, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be kind of gleaned from it and, and you did a good job of unpacking some of that. So I hope listeners will, I trust listeners will enjoy it. So thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.